0: Holy Spirit, come now and through your power, through your creative power, Lord, do a mighty work through your word among us today. Father, we we hold you to your word and we know you let us do this when you say that my word will not return void, but it will accomplish that which I purpose. And so, Lord, accomplish your purpose in your word, through your word, in the preaching of your word this morning bring new life and, and bring new devotion to Jesus Christ through preaching. And be with me, Lord, that I might speak exactly what you would have me to say and be with all of us that our hearts would be open to be able to hear and receive the truth in the scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, you probably know that uh, Christ church, like a lot of churches, follows something that we call... The Christian calendar, which, actually, which annually highlights critical moments in the life of Jesus. It's a way of entering into, is a way of telling time according to the life of Jesus, and that telling time that way will begin to affect our lives as we live His life through the year. And if you don't believe that's true, uh, just go ask Hallmark. They control the way we, can, we think about the world. So much so, you know, that, that Hallmark card uh, giving us all those holidays like uh, Administrative Assistance Day. Don't forget that one. That's, a, that's an important one. Uh, but you, that can become so influential they'll even give you a TV channel. So, so but right now we are in the season of Epiphany. Epiphany literally means the shining forth or the manifestation, shining forth or manifestation of something. For Christians, that means that the Sundays of this season focus on how God has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, how God reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, the reading from the Gospel of Matthew was the account of Jesus' baptism by John at the Jordan River. The baptism of Jesus is always the lectionary reading for the Sunday after the Feast of the Epiphany because the baptism of Jesus, um, it manifests, it is the epiphany of something about who God is and what God is up to in Jesus Christ. And right here in today's reading from John's Gospel, we are back at the Jordan River with John the Baptist and Jesus sometime after that baptism event. And in these verses, John the baptizer grants us insight, a glimpse into, into who Jesus is and what God is doing in and through Jesus Christ. And he uses epiphany language right here in verse 29 when John the baptizer says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God Who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. We had a lot of things in that gospel reading, but we're going to just unpack this one verse that reveals so much about who about God in Christ and about you and me. And just to go ahead and give you uh, the the punchline up front, this speaks to how a holy and righteous God can reconcile and be in relationship with a fallen and sinful humanity. This is the revelation of how a holy and righteous God intends to be in relationship, in right relationship with a restored and renewed humanity. So let's let's jump right in. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time, you have probably lost the ability to hear just how weird John's statement sounds. What in the world does the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world mean? That's not everyday language. If this statement is supposed to reveal something about the God who put on flesh and came among us in Jesus Christ, we're going to have to pick apart. We're going to have to unravel that term. And the very first phrase The Lamb of God, that very first phrase of the Lamb of God, literally leaves many commentators scratching their heads. Well, for us to understand this phrase, we have to go back and look at some Old Testament passages. And so this is kind of a note-taking sermon. You might want to write, at least write down some of these scripture references that I'm going to give you that you can go back to and read again. And the first reference that's going to help us pick apart this term, help us understand this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is found in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 22 It's actually on page 16, what I'm going to quote to you in just a minute in your pew Bible. That chapter contains actually a very disturbing story. It's a story about Abraham who in his old age... Is called upon by God to offer up his one and only son, Isaac, the child through whom God promised to make Abraham's descendant a great nation, to offer his son as a sacrifice. But God stops Abraham from completing the sacrifice. But before all of that happens, on the way up to Mount Moriah, where the sacrifice is to occur, Isaac and Abraham have this conversation. It's in Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood. Okay, they're going up to offer sacrifice. Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, this is a great verse, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide for himself the lamb. When they approached Mount Moriah and God had stopped the sacrifice of Isaac, that's exactly what happened. If you jump down to verse 13, chapter 22 of Genesis, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Okay, so here's the important Lamb of God part you need to pay attention to. Ready? So John's audience, John the Baptizer's audience, who are familiar with this story, recognize that John was saying this about Jesus. He's saying Jesus would take the place of someone else. Jesus would take the place of someone else. Jesus was going to be substituted. That's an important word. Jesus was going to be substituted for someone else as an offering. But wait, there's more. You get even, This order gets even extra stuff with it. The offering, the sacrifice of the lamb, that sacrificial language shows up again in a critical, maybe the critical passage in the history of Israel. You may recall that through a series of events, the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, had moved to Egypt. And while they were there, they were made slaves by the ruler of Egypt, by Pharaoh. And they cried out to be delivered from slavery. They said, get us out of this mess, God. And God raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. If you want to go see a good representation of this, go watch that cartoon, that animated feature, um, Prince of Egypt. It's actually really quite good. Made me cry at one point, but I cry at stoplights. You know all kinds of things. So, so, so but so he goes. I'm sorry. I'll get back to it. But when, but when Moses convey, conveyed God's message to, to Pharaoh, "Let my people go," Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused to release the people from slavery. And as a result, God sent a series of plagues. You might remember plagues of flies and frogs and darkness, all those plagues designed to convince the king to free the Israelites. And the final plague was that all of the firstborn of Egypt would what? They would die. In order not to be struck down with the Egyptians, the Israelites were to kill a Passover lamb. lamb, that's right, and place its blood on the lentil and doorpost of their homes. We heard that this morning out of Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 and 23. And Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lentil and the two doorposts With the blood that is in the basin, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood, when he sees the blood, when he sees the blood, on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So John, the baptizer, by using that terminology, is saying that Jesus is like the Passover lamb that saved the Israelites from death and was the harbinger of their deliverance from slavery. He saves them from death and he is the harbinger the sort of the foretelling of the deliverance from slavery. This is what happens before the Israelites are freed from slavery. The lamb, the Passover lamb is killed. The destroyer passes over. And then they are let go to go into the wilderness. So therefore, the Passover lamb, here it is, was God's way of saving them from slavery and death. Slavery and death. And here's the really amazing thing. Here's where that Passover story and John's gospel come together on purpose. Are you ready for this? This is so cool. It's one of those little nuggets in the Bible that if you're not paying attention, you miss it. The John who wrote the gospel, John the Evangelist, not John the Baptist, John the Evangelist, wants us to know that this is what is meant by the Lamb of God. When when that phrase is uttered, he wants us to know that's what is meant. Because John the evangelist shifts the timing, the chronology of Jesus' crucifixion. He doesn't do it to be inaccurate. He does it to make a point under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In John's gospel alone, Jesus goes to the cross and is executed. In John 19, at the exact time that the Passover lambs are being sacrificed. Do you see how this all comes together? So with all this biblical imagery behind that little phrase, the Lamb of God, what is John the baptizer saying about Jesus? He's saying this, and this is so important. It's so important, it's kind of making chills go down my back right this minute. But I want you to hear this phrase because it is is an important phrase that I do not think we can dispense with in classic, certainly reformed, Christian theology. Ready? Substitutionary atonement. We believe in a substitutionary atonement. It's right there. It's in the Articles of Religion. It's actually in uh, uh, Thomas Cramner's uh, sermon about justification. It's, it's so good. Go read that. Um, it really is so good. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. He, he is, Jesus is, the Lamb of God is, the one, God, the one whom God has provided to die in our place. Genesis 22. It's like Isaac ram caught in the bushes by its horns. God will provide the lamb. He is the one God has provided to die in our place to do what? To, Exodus 12, save us from slavery and death. Praise God. Somebody died for me to save me from slavery and death so I wouldn't have to live under slavery and I wouldn't have to face the second death. Now, some some people, ignorant people, bless their hearts, (laughs) say, well, that's just divine child abuse. Well, again, bless your heart. Because remember, John has made it clear at the beginning of his account of Jesus, in John chapter 1, that Jesus was God and was with God in the beginning. And that this God, who was with the Father, has put on flesh and blood. The one true God. There's one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Son of God, who is at the Father's right hand, has put on flesh and blood and dwelt, um, come and dwelt among us. And that's what it says in John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father from the Father, full of grace and truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, St. Paul, this is 1 Corinthians 5.7. Paul identifies Jesus as that Passover lamb who willingly becomes the substitute. He's not just drug out of heaven and made to do it. He willingly does it when he says, and you'll hear this phrase today, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So here's the point. In Jesus Christ, God is offering himself in our place as a sacrifice to deliver us from slavery and death. Now, you didn't know you could get that much out of like four words, but there you go. The second part of that phrase, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is equally important. And it's just as difficult for modern readers to untangle as the first bit. So exactly what is the sin of the world? Notice that John the, uh, John the Baptizer, as reported by John the Evangelist, John doesn't say sins. He says, sin. So what is he talking about? Well, sin is everything that alienates and separates us from a life-giving relationship with God and our neighbor. Everything that separates us from a life-giving relationship with God and my neighbor is sin. Our rejection of God, our rebellion against God, our desire to live independent from God, all of that is at the root of sin. All the great and small wickednesses we are capable of as human beings flow from the basic human rebellion against the God who loves us and calls us into being. And the results, okay, the results of that rejection of God are precisely what the Lamb of God saves us from, slavery and death. The result of, well, you know, where would I get that? Well, you know, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death, right? So our rejection of God to us, ready? As we are going through life, I deal with this all the time. I have deal with it in my own life and people around me, and I see the results of it constantly. Our rejection of God seems like the path to individual freedom but actually sin becomes a power in our lives that doesn't it's not freedom it controls and enslaves us the power of sin in our life will control and enslave us jesus answered, this is uh, john chapter 8 verse 34 jesus answered them truly truly i say to you everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin Likewise, as I said, it unleashes the power of death into human existence. And without Christ's self-offering and conquest of death, it would, death itself would be utterly victorious over us. Again, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And that would mean this. Are you ready? Um, we, we have in our church community in the last few months, we've seen a lot of our, our people in our families, close families, people in this church family, and in our extended fam- families, we've seen people die. And here's what it would mean if there was no provision for that, is that that would mean that when we stand by the grave of a loved one, that's all there ever will be. That person's essence is gone forever. That If there is no, if there is no deliverance from the power of death, then all of their life, ultimately is made meaningless by the finality of the grave without Jesus. And this leads us to God's provision, his solution for the misery and devastation we have unleashed in creation by way of our sin. Again, this is linked to one of those lamb passages in the Old Testament. You probably are familiar with Isaiah 53. It's one of the servant songs in Isaiah 53. That prophesied what the Messiah was going to do when he appeared. Please listen to this. This is Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 6. All we like sheep, all we like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned away everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. John is saying this. This is the one who carries our iniquities, who takes our sins upon himself. And because Jesus offers himself freely as a sacrifice for our sins... We are saved from God's righteous judgment. That's what's behind John's epiphany of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the good news in a nutshell. You might want to write this down God loved us so much that He has offered His own life in our place so that we might be liberated from the eternal consequences of slavery death, and judgment. God loves us so much that he has offered his own life in our place so that we might be liberated from the eternal consequences of slavery, sin, and judgment. And what could possibly motivate Jesus to offer himself up like a lamb for the slaughter? Ephesians 5, verse 2, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's the motivation. That's really cool. In fact, that's wonderful. I love that. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement. But hear me, there is a deep problem with this that makes all of what I have just said seem like utter irrelevant nonsense to modern secular people. And it's this, we do not have any sense of sin as a cosmic offense. We have no personal sense of sin as a cosmic offense against a holy and living God. And so we've lost, listen, we've lost the understanding that our sin has cosmic, transcendent ramifications. And that's why at, I think it was at Union Theological Seminary this past year, that they got a bunch of houseplants together in the chapel and confessed their sins to plants. Now, look, I care deeply about because I, we are given the creation mandate to steward, care for, bless, and glorify God through his beautiful creation. It is not ours to mess up. So that's not the point here. The point is this. When you lose the idea of a transcendent, all-holy, righteous God, something that goes beyond this world, you're, going to, you're still going to have that sense of sin and guilt, and it's got nowhere to go except maybe plants. You know? C.S. Lewis encountered this problem when he was asked to give a series of talks about the Christian faith to members of the Royal Air Force. When asked about what was the greatest barrier to communicating the Christian faith to his audience, he replied The greatest barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. The early Christian preachers could assume in, the, their heart, in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian message was in those days unmistakably the evangelium, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. The ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed, Lewis says. Humanity is the judge, God is in the dock. Humanity is the judge, God is on trial. And so one of the great reasons that modern Westerners reject all this Jesus stuff is that in our minds, we stand above God and judge him according to our own self-constructed, often self contradictory standards we have erected an arbitrary set of morals like confessing to plants with zero transcendent authority they are simply these morals these arbitrary morals are simply rooted in our current ethical practices of the day we might even speak oh well we you know what's our what's the moral authority it's the social contract but our little ethical framework of a social contract has no power to speak something, speak about something, or judge something as being ontologically. That just means down in its being, all right. Uh, objectively, nothing. We don't have any way to object to, to to judge something as objectively, universally good or evil. And if social media, listen, if social media is the barometer, people people still have the capacity to be morally outraged. People are morally outraged all the time. It's just a constant outrage vortex. Don't get sucked into it. They just don't have any fixed ultimate truth on which to base their outrage. The secular's only authority is this. We said so. It's necessarily, that kind of authority is necessarily a power move the Christian moral framework is about a person, not about the exercise of power. Hmm. Secular morality always comes with an iron fist. It always has a totalitarian impulse. And based on our self-concocted morality of the moment, We frog march the living God into the courtroom of human opinion and judge him and we find him guilty. You are not woke enough, God. No, we haven't lost our own capacity for moral outrage. We've just unhitched it from reality and turned it against the ultimate source of all that is good. It's hard to see the amazing good news revealed in Jesus Christ. When John points to Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when we don't think there's any sin that we have committed that isn't so bad that we ourselves can't take care of it. By getting more woke, or by getting on the right side of history, or by adopting the prevailing ideologies embraced by the elites of our ruling classes, and the academy, and the media. Those are the people that are always doing this, wagging their finger at us. You bad people, I bet you shopped at Walmart sometime this week. Ooh! Mm. But the reality is that the human condition, apart from God, is far graver than any amount of social virtue posturing can deal with. And if we are honest with ourselves, listen, beloved, please listen. If we are honest with ourselves, as the consequences of our rebellion against God and our self-directed living, the consequences, the shattered relationships and broken families, the physical and emotional toll, the financial chaos, the fear of death, and maybe even the gnawing possibility that there may indeed be a reckoning for our lives beyond the grave as these consequences begin to pile up, and if we don't harden our hearts... We recognize that we cannot fix our problem by ourselves. And just maybe in that moment, or maybe even this morning, we will entertain the possibility that this may all be true. Everything that John the baptizer just said. And we will turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and we will ask, can you really be what I am seeking? Can you really be the solution to the chaos and emptiness and, yes, even guilt? And in that moment, Jesus responds as he did to those first inquirers. He says, come and see. Come and see. We want to see and then maybe we'll come. Jesus says, come and follow me and you will see. As Audrey West says, if you want to know the word made flesh, come and see Jesus. If you want to know what love is like, come and see Jesus. If you want to experience God's glory, be filled with bread that never perishes, to quench your thirst with living water, to be born again, to abide in love, to behold the light of the world, to experience the way, the truth, and the life, to enter into life everlasting. If you want to know God, Come and see Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.